Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Stone Pages Arcade News Podcast, episode number 272. I would like to welcome everybody back to the podcast, and especially for this very special February edition, because we only have one story for today's podcast. This one was specifically picked by Diego, and it is a quite amazing story about Stonehenge. For those of you looking at the time duration for today's podcast, you might be wondering how can this story be so long? And I will explain this now. I'll cover this in the podcast as well, but this is mainly because I cover both the Guardian article that uh, is the original source for this story, but also the academic article alongside it, which is a fantastic kind of dichotomy between these two sources. As always, this uh, source comes from the World Wide Web, and Diego has, of course, gotten all the sources that we can and thrown them on the website at news.stonepages.com. So once you're done listening to the story, or if you want to read both of the articles before you listen to today's podcast, then feel free to hop in there, look on the website, and you'll probably see all the other stories that we've missed because of this one story being so freaking long. But without further ado, let's get to it. So this story was quite exciting, and I thought that it would actually give an opportunity to do something else with uh, Stone Pages that I've wanted to do, but I haven't had the time or just the perfect story to do it with. However, I logged out this time as um, recently there was a big discovery around Stonehenge, and it was reported on The Guardian, which is where Diego um, sent me for the story, but it was also published in the journal Antiquity, which is a peer-reviewed journal, and it also had the added benefit of having a BBC Two show around it as well which led to some very interesting discussions, which I know that archaeologists have quite often, namely in how much of the facts do we sacrifice in order to uh, tell a more clear and compelling story because of we of all of the if, ands, and buts that we do tend to have from excavating. So, the purpose of today's story is to give an insight into that. And I'll be starting with covering the Guardian article, and then I'll be covering the article in Antiquity, and hopefully we can kind of have a discussion around the facts and where, for example, we use some facts from one place but not the other, and I hope that this will be a compelling insight into kind of how archaeology works and more of, you know, what what do we see in the field versus what do we see published and what do we have to keep in mind because I know I'm guilty of this as well, especially when I represent some of the stories. So it's worth keeping in mind for future studies with this story. So I hope you guys will bear with me. And um, if nothing else, you know, it's a it's a great uh, point of discussion. So let's get to it. So if we begin where the article does, around 900 some years ago, Geoffrey of Monmouth wrote an account of how Stonehenge first appeared in England. At this time, he told of the wizard Merlin leading men to Ireland to capture a magical stone circle called the Giant's Dance and then rebuilding it in England as a memorial to the dead. Now, his account has largely been dismissed, not only because of the fact he wrote it 900 years ago, but it's wrong on a lot of other historical facts. However, as we actually have talked about before in the Stone Pages uh, uh, podcast, some of the bluestones came from a region of Wales 
And during Jeffrey Amalmuth's time, this was actually considered Irish territory. Keeping this in mind, as well as the fact that I know we've talked about before, that not only Stonehenge was made from bluestones around Wales, that's a very generally accepted fact, there was also an indication that Stonehenge was possibly a a reused monument. I remember I was talking about how uh, there was evidence of it having been built in Wales, taken down, and then moved to England. Therefore, it does suggest that the 12th century legend may not be a complete fantasy. Now, the monument they found in Wales has a diameter of 110 meters, and the ditch is identical to the one that encloses Stonehenge and is also aligned on a midsummer solstice sunrise, just like the Wiltshire Monument. Along with this, there are actually a lot of other markers, such as stone holes that follow the circle's outline, and some of them have the same shapes, or at least similar shapes, to the ones uh, that Stonehenge have, or at least the blue stone pillars that uh, Stonehenge has. Including one which has an imprint that matches the unusual cross-section of a Stonehenge bluestone, to quote one of the archaeologists, like a key in the lock. Now, the location or the supposed original occasion of this monument is in an area known as Wan Mound. And there are some of the stones still left standing. If you go to the Guardian article, you can see Mike Parker Pearson standing next to one of these stones, along with uh, Professor Alice Roberts. Now, with these stones being found it does kind of allude to the fact that Jeffrey Amalmuth might have been correct, as he does write that stones of a vast magnitude were moved in his history of the kings of Britain, among which uh, he also popularizes the legend of Arthur. And to quote Parker Pearson, there may be a tiny grain of truth in this account, and he does say it's tempting to believe it, and we may have found just what uh, Jeffrey Amalmuth calls the giant stance. The theory of the monument coming from Wales isn't a new theory. A geologist, Herbert Thomas, established around a century ago that the Dollarite bluestones at Stonehenge originated in the Priscilla Hills of Pembrokeshire, and he believes that these originally formed a venerated stone circle, or Stonehenge in this fact, or in this case. Now, since 2015, Parker Pearson has been convinced that somewhere near this quarry where the bluestones are from, there must be an original Stonehenge. It only makes sense, according to him. And that's just why that we're seeing Stonehenge as a second-hand monument. And it does also kind of confirm, you know, his suspicion that it has to come from somewhere because these quarries are 140 miles away, even as the crows flies, and there has to be some sort of relationship. So over the years, excavations have taken place. I know some of my own friends from university actually went on some of these excavations in Wales, and they found some uh, more evidence for this theory, among which being the stone circle that I've mentioned before, and the article also talks about. However, the acidic soil around uh, this area in Wales has destroyed all of the organic matter, or at least almost all of it, and most of this would have been great for carbon dating. However, using a method known as OSL, which measures the last time dirt has seen sunlight, they've been able to give a lightly construction for the original monument around 3300 BC. Now, this theory or this method 
is something I'll cover a little bit more in the next part, but it is a very neat theory and I've only, or a neat method, and I've only heard it used a few times here in Denmark. Um, it involves a lot of archaeologists being out at night with night vision goggles, specifically, because once the new sunlight touches the dirt, automatically the date is erased because obviously it's seen sunlight again. For the next part of the story, I will be kind of ignoring the basic facts that the article covers and I'll be instead focusing a little bit more on what the article says around the site of one mount as well as some of the dating possibilities and the dating extents that that the article gives as well as the discussion and then part of the conclusion as well. If you want to read the whole article, I will, of course, have uh, sent a link to Diego so he can include it in the story as well as the source for the news on the website. As mentioned before, it is believed that Stonehenge is a second monument and Wan Mon is the original location of said monument. It was identified as a site of interest in 2010 by the Stones of Stonehenge project and magnetometry was used in the area to survey it in 2011, though this failed to locate any geophysical anomalies that were indicative of stone holes. However, none of the monuments that they looked at between 2012 and 2017 were Neolithic, and therefore they returned back to Wan Mon in 2017. The site itself is of great interest because there are stones left from the original monument, and it is based on these stones that you can draw an arc, and it is therefore based here around that they believe that this might be a Stonehenge. So they started excavating, uh, leaving trenches at both ends of the arc, and discovered that there were two stone holes without stones. This, of course, refuted the original magnetronic claims, and it is a big problem that we have in Denmark as well. For magnetometry to work, it has to have a magnetic substrate. And sadly, the earth around this original monument has a non-magnetic substrate of glacial drift deposits. So, in 2018, Parker Pearson and his team undertook further surveys using what's called Earth-Resistant Ground Penetrating Radar, or GPR, as well as an electromagnetic uh, induction. Again, the results were disappointing because of the minimal magnetic and conductive properties of the substrate. This, of course, is a problem because ideally we would like to look at the soil in a non-destructive manner before we excavate. But in this case, it isn't functional. So excavation had to be undertaken to further study the site. Based on the placement of the stones that were left, as well as, I assume, the uh, stone holes left from or found during the trenches, they had an idea of the circumference of the circle. Following this, they excavated the circumference of the circle, which I assume they based on the standing stones, as well as the two that were detected in 2017, and found 12 subsurface features located within. Six of these were stone holes with emptied sockets from the original standing monoliths. Two of the stone holes uh, were also excavated. Uh, These were of uh, two fallen stones at the ends of the arc, and it indicated that the diameter of the former stone circle was 110 meters. Uh, 
A lot of the uh, stone circles had a shallow ramp of up to half a meter in length, and six stone holes and four surviving standing stones may have originally formed a circle of about 30 to 50 stones. However, further excavation is needed to refine this estimate. Again, I would really encourage you to go look at the article. Uh, they have some drawings around the trend sizes, as well as showing you a lot of the work during, including a fantastic aerial shot of the excavation site. Now comes the big problem for the site, namely dating the stone circle itself. There were prehistoric artifacts covered from this area, namely a flint scraper, a flint chip, and a trimmed circular mudstone disc. While the scraper and the chip are sadly not closely datable, the disc is a type that is found within Neolithic levels at the Cairngorgdic megalithic quarry, which lies five kilometers to the east. Now, prehistoric stone circles are notoriously difficult to date, not only because of the paucity of material culture, but also because of the lack of materials suitable for radiometric dating uh, from within the stone holes. Normally, if we have post holes, we do tend to have some form of organic matter. This problem is also not helped by the previously mentioned acidic soils around the area, which then doesn't allow for the survival of things like antler picks or animal bones. So the only thing that is able to be radiocarbon dated in the area are small samples of wood charcoal recovered by sediment flotation, but because of the size, namely under 4 millimeters long, it is very, very likely that they are affected by it by interpretation and are usually therefore intrusive or residual. This then leads to a degree of multi-dating that needs to be done. So not only using the radiocarbon dating, but also what's called optically stimulated luminescence dating or OSL. This is the dating type I spoke about where what you measure is the last time that the earth saw any form of light, which gives you a, a form of dating. Luminescence dating is also used for ceramics and uh, bricks as well. To quote the article, OSL dating determines the burial age of sediments with the dating signals being reset by light exposure and immediately prior to deposition. There is one slight caveat with this method as well, namely that any uh, sediments that have a complex depositional history obscure the data because of a poorly reset resetting at deposition or more recent materials infiltrating through the stratigraphic layers. One of these possibilities, namely could be a mole digging through, which we do see in postals as well. For the actual use of this dating, a lot of field profiling had to be attempted. So in essence, what we're looking for, what archaeologists look for, are as original postals as we can, looking for primary or constructional fills, meaning from when these stones were originally placed to secondary fills that accumulate following the removal of a monolith, or if we're talking later periods, the removal of, for example, a wooden post. This led to a sampling of 18 uh, of the stone holes, and these were all sadly characterized by a heterogeneous sensitivity and equivalent dose of distributions. This sadly indicates a complex depositional history. 
This gives a problem with the dating, something that we also see in radiocarbon dating. So the individual ages of the samples fall from 6,980 BC with a what's called a uh, plus or minus scale. So you can add or subtract that from the original age of 2,120 years to around 1980 with a variance of 20 years. And it is an extremely large area, and it reflects the heterogeneous mixed-age equivalent dose of the distributions. Now, some of the samples from the primary fills of the sampled stone holes have a um, weighted combination, suggesting a probable construction date from 3530 BC with a plus-minus range of 330 years. And some of the samples from the secondary fills have a weighted combination from two stone holes, suggesting the removal of the stones before 2120 BC with a plus-minus of 520 years. The problem is the removal of the stones leaves no datable sediments, as these could accumulate only once the stones were gone. So, essentially, it's any time in the subsequent centuries or even millennia after the removal of the stones. So within the OSL dating, we have 18 samples that were taken from the site. The individual dates of these samples fall from 6,900 BC, uh, plus minus a range of 2,120 years, to 1,900 AD, with a plus minus of 20 years. This reflects the heterogeneous mixed age and equivalent dose of the distributions. However, if we look at some of the samples that have primary fills, that would be four stone holes, they have a suggested uh, construction date of 3530 BC with a plus minus range of 330 years. And the samples from the secondary fills, this was about uh, two stone holes in the article at least, suggest a removal of the stones from before 2120 BC with a plus minus range of 520 years. The removal is a little bit more on shaky foundations because of the fact the sediments can first come into the holes once the stone has been removed. So we're not just maybe talking a year or so, we could be talking any time in the subsequent centuries or millennia from the removal of the stones. Moving on from the OSL samples, we kind of have to talk about the radiocarbon dating because, as I mentioned, radiocarbon dating was still done on some of the charcoal found in the features. 43 samples of wood charcoal were dated at a radiocarbon laboratory in Oxford. Of these, 31 came from stone holes, and the remainder came from other features surrounding the site. Now, a lot of the dates that came from these samples fell between the 9th to the 5th millennia BC. That's with the differences calculated in there, which is a broadly Mesolithic period. And these are excluded because they must be residual in the stonehold fills as they fall outside the dates provided by the OSL dating. Similarly, there were some of the samples that were dated to later than the OSL dating uh, during the second and first millennia. This would be the Bronze and the Iron Ages and therefore are excluded as being intrusive. This leaves a group of seven dates, four of these coming from stoneholes. All of these fall within the latter part of the fourth millennia that would be the end of the early Neolithic and during the middle Neolithic. Therefore, there is a uh, proposed date for the erection of the stone circle that lies between 3600 and 3000 BC. 
This then begs the question, what does this mean for the Juan Mound Stone Circle, date-wise? It means that it is among the earliest stone circles in Britain, alongside one known as Long Meg and her daughters in Cumbria, which is 109 meters in diameter, and the stone circle beneath the passage tomb of Brinselli Dubu on Anglesey, which is about 18 meters in diameter. Hazel charcoal from one of the stone holes at Long Meg dates the construction to 3340 to 3100 BC, and the cremated human remains from the pits associated with the stone holes at Brinselli Dubu date to 3500 to 3100 and 3310 to 2900 BC. So, keeping this in mind, there are no stone circles in Britain, for now anyways, that are dated to before 3400 BCE. Therefore, the OSL dates that are suggested are for the later part of the OSL date range, namely 3400 to 3200 BC for one month. And it is believed at the end of 3200 BC, the construction of one month is proposed, and because This is because it's the limit of the OSL dating. Additionally, one of the Neolithic radiocarbon dates from a stone hole at Wanman falls after 3200 BC. This would be 3340 to 3034, and it is from the fill of an emptied stone hole, number 37. It is therefore believed that this accumulated after the stones had been removed. Therefore, this hole specifically may relate to the stone's removal and not its erection. Following the dating, in the article, there is actually a section about the astronomic orientation and the geography of the stones at Juan Mon, as well as the stones at um, Stonehenge. However, I feel that it would be better for people who are interested in it to read it in the article. I know it's mentioned in The Guardian, but I feel it's more important to cover the discussion and some of the conclusions here. The stone circle at Wanman is determined to be 110 meters in diameter, and it is therefore the third largest of Britain's great stone circles, with diameters above 100 meters. However, Stonehenge's first stage, or the stage one, that uses the inferred bluestone circles of monoliths that are believed to have stood within the Aubrey holes, was only 87 meters in diameter. And, unlike the uh, stage 1 at Stonehenge, that have evenly spaced stone holes, Juan Mon stones appear to have been spaced more regularly. These gaps have been determined to be either the result of lack of erection, or possibly a way to pronounce the monument in the landscape, so when you view it from certain angles, it seems much bigger than it is. It is believed that under the circumstances when it was reused at Stonehenge, it testifies to an altered emphasis and perspective, the latter one being one of more regularity and homogeneity. In accordance with the astronomical portion of it, Juan Mon's uh, putative entrance provides a parallel with Stonehenge, which is positioned to the southwest end of a geomorphological landform of parallel ridges that aligns on the solstitial axis. However, Stonehenge's stage 1 also aligns broadly with the northernmost major moonrise, which is not something that would seem to have been marked at Juan Mon. There is another link between the two sites by their shared diameters, namely the 110 meters uh, that uh, this site has, 
which comes from the circular ditch that encloses the monument. However, there is a slight issue with claiming that the Wan Mon Monument is the direct predecessor to Stonehenge. While a strong case can be made for it, it is very unlikely that the former stone circle ever contained as many as the 56 standing stones, which is the number indicated by the Aubrey Holtz at Stonehenge. It is believed that a estimated 80 blue stones have been brought to Salisbury Plains, the 56 in the Aubrey Holes, and around 25 in the nearby circle of Blue Stonehenge. And it is believed that in Stonehenge's second stage, beginning in 2740 to 2505 BC, a double arc of stone holes, the Q and R holes, held an unknown number of blue stones. The third and last stage of Stonehenge, beginning in 2400 and ending somewhere around 2220 BC, the blue stones are thought to have been rearranged into an inner and outer circle using all the extant blue stones as well as those from Bluestone Henge. There is also the question of the geology. The Wanmon stones are all unspotted at Dollarite, including the flake from Stonehole 91, which is in the article for those interested, is at odds with most of the 44 blue stones surviving at Stonehenge today. Only three of these are unspotted dollarite compared with the 27 dollarite stones. The, the four unspotted dollarite stones at Wan Mon that are left may of course explain why this is the case. It does seem more likely, however, according to Parker Pierce, that Wan Mon only contributed a small portion of Stonehenge's 80 or so blue stones. So this then raises the question of, is Wan Mon just part of a longer chain of monuments in Wales that contributed to the monoliths at Stonehenge and Blue Stonehenge? It is clear that the altar stone, Stone 80 at Stonehenge, comes from Prisili, but most likely from Devonian sandstone of the Seni Formation, which is about 100 kilometers east. Similarly, there are two other sandstone pillars at Stonehenge that are of lower Paleolithic sandstone, which is found across a large area to the north and east of Priscilla. These could also derive from circles or other megalithic monuments outside of Priscilla, and it is possible, if not likely, that some of the stone circles were dismantled in the Priscilla area to provide Stonehenge and Blue Stonehenge with their full number of blue stones. So, of course, the big question. Is Juan Mon the father or originator of Stonehenge, and it is it the giant's dance that is described by Geoffrey of Monmouth, and is there any truth to the legend? This is where, famously, archaeology and myth have made an awkward pairing, and some of the details from Geoffrey's story have to be rejected as far as the appropriation of the stones goes. However, the shared diameter of Wanmon and Stonehenge as well as their midsummer solstice sunrise orientation, suggest that there are some key aspects of the circle's architecture that were brought from Wales to Salisbury Plains. And they were both transformed and reinstated rather than taken by force as a trophy by a Neolithic Merlin and his army. <laughs> Which, as funny as that sounds, and as good of an explanation that it is, it is sadly not the case. Recently, 25 of the approximately 60 cremation burials from Stonehenge were analyzed through isotopic analysis. And of these 25 individuals, four people had strontium residues that were consistent with having lived the last decades of their lives on the Ordovian Silurian rocks of southwest Wales, including around the odd crops of the Priscilla Hills. 
the rest of the individuals, about 21, have ratios consistent with living on the chalk of Salisbury Plain or on the surrounding Mesozoic strata. If we do this and extrapolate it out, it seems that there must be some kind of burial amount from between 150 to 240 individuals around this area, and 25 to 38 people could have had such origins. The isotopes, of course, allow for the study of this as they remodel over the years, every approximately every 10 years or so, which then causes the isotope ratios to alter to the levels found in the new environments. Therefore, any long-distance migrants who had lived more than a decade on the chalk would no longer be identifiable as such. This, of course, then leads to a discussion of whether or not the 24 to 38 individuals coming from Wales could be doubled or even you know, trebled to estimate the true value of how many people migrated from Western Wales to Stonehenge. What also makes Wanmon interesting is the absence of radiocarbon dates that fall within the periods or the millenniums after 3000 BC, which fits with the scarcity of third millennium radiocarbon dates from the Priscilla region, despite decades of research into their Neolithic periods. Equally, Wanmon also does not become a core monument in a complex um, monument sets, which is as we see at other stone circles. For example, Stonehenge has Woodhenge. This could be a sign of it being curtailed due to an early dismantling of the monument before it being moved to Stonehenge. The region, though, does not seem to have been entirely evacuated, as the four remaining stones at Wanmon could symbolize the identity of the people who chose to remain local, though it may have been extensively depopulated. However, there is only one way to answer this, and it is into further research onto the settlement and land use employing other lines of evidence, such as palynology, and this will hopefully give the answers. Therefore, looking at all the evidence, it is believed that Stonehenge Stage 1 was built partially, or wholly, by Neolithic migrants from Wales who brought their monument, or monuments as the case may be, as a physical manifestation of their ancestral identities, therefore recreating it in a similar form on Salisbury Plain, which was a locale already holding a long tradition of ceremonial gathering. Stonehenge's first stage could also have served to unite the people of southern Britain. Blue stones were brought to the land of Sarcene stones and installed at a sacred axis mundi, or world center, where the sky and the earth were envisioned in cosmic harmony, and where the people of different cultural and regional origins may gather for collective monument building and feasting. And with that, we've reached the end of today's podcast. Now, two things. One, if I sound a little bit more chipper and less hoarse now than I do in the Stonehenge story, it is because there is some time lapse between when I recorded the story and when I recorded the intro and the outro. I was a bit tired after spending the entire day recording that story, so I felt I needed to give my voice a little bit of a break. The other thing, and I know I forgot to do this in the recording, so I'm doing this now. The point I mentioned is the dichotomy between the popular article, uh, as in the Guardian article, and the academic article, and how interesting that is. And it is something that I feel I need to consider definitely more often when I do the Stone Pages Archeo News podcast because of the fact a lot of the stories that I read to you guys have be or have come from general popular science articles, which is fine. 
There's nothing wrong with that. But I feel that this story especially shows kind of what we miss when we go away from the academic articles and how important those are to go back and look at. But also, I do realize that it's not feasible for a lot of people. I remember one time I had to use one that I didn't have access to through the university, and it cost £75 to get into that one article, which is insane. But just to reiterate the point, this is something we really need to consider, or rather that I need to consider when I read you guys the news. And um, I hope that you'll accept my apologies for sometimes forgetting to do that, and maybe looking at it a little bit more critically when I read the news to everybody here listening to the podcast. However, with that point, I promise now is the end of today's podcast. It is sad to see you go, but I hope you had a lot of fun and I hope you loved the Stonehenge story despite how long it was. Definitely hope you guys took a break in there because I wish I had. Thank you guys for hanging around and always like you guys listening. And if you have any feedback, of course, fill up at stonepages.com. Join our Facebook group. It's uh, a pleasure to join. I'm sure Diego and I will approve you to get in there. I will see you guys next time.